Very fun. <laughs> oh man, what a great weekend last weekend coming after, you know, after Easter. What a great picture of life in, you know, kind of what life with like, like is like with, that's hard to say. Life is like with Jesus, this sort of a, um, a, a death and resurrection almost on display really in, in that symbol of baptism. So beautiful. I got to baptize my own son, which was very cool. And um, so good to be with you guys this morning. I, you know, it is, first of all, before we, we have to make this absolutely clear, um, this is International Star Wars Day, and so those of you who are nerds, <laughs> welcome. Um, some of you are like, why is it International Star Wars Day? It's May the 4th. May the 4th. There you go. And the 5th also. So, um, anyways, very good to be with you guys. One of the things I have to tell you about, Kim made an announcement about Trisha Lot Williford. Trisha, um, I don't think she mentioned, is, you know, she's someone who lost her husband. Um, and kind of a, a freak deal. And, um, and my, my wife, Amanda, and her friend uh, were together at the pool. We were, all of our families were together at the pool, and both of them just like, cr- we're like looking over at these two women, and they're just bawling. Like, this is the best story I've ever read in my life. It's the best book ever. I love this. And of course, me and Michelle's husband, are, you know, my friend, we're looking at each other like, this is, that's the worst idea ever. Guys are like, a book that just makes you cry? That does not make the best book ever. But my wife has given it to all of her friends, Michelle, my buddy Aaron. I mean, she has given the book to everybody else. Trisha Lott Williford's going to be awesome if you like tears. I am not that person. Some of you guys are like, I can't wait to cry, Mother's Day. So it's going to be awesome. So my wife is all excited about it. Amanda's cannot, she can't, she's recruited all of her friends to come to this thing. It's going to be awesome, I guess. All right, um, excited for that. We are in a series called What If? Thus, we have all these question marks on the stage. Someone goes, why? It looks like we have like the Riddler. Is this like Batman theme today or whatever? It's just a question mark. Okay, but the series is a What If? series. And it's based on the idea as we look through the book of Luke that what if everything Jesus said and did actually was true, A, like what if it actually was the case? Luke's a guy writing his own account of Jesus' life and ministry um, as an outsider. He's not someone who grew up in the Jewish or the Hebrew tradition. He doesn't understand all that stuff. But he's an outsider looking in at all that kind of stuff, and he's trying to explain what if, he, what if what Jesus did and said is actually true, A. And B, what if we actually took that stuff seriously? Like if he said to do some things and we actually did them. Not only like, well, that's wonderful. I'm glad he said that. But if we actually somehow managed to make that a part of our lives, what would that look like? And so we, Jesus is calling people to stuff. He's calling people to do things and to live differently. And it is a massive challenge. It's a reason, there's part of the reason Jesus keeps making these kind of bold asks of people and people keep going, ah, nah, I don't think so. They keep, he gets this big crowd of people and then he asks them to follow him and some of them go, I'm not so sure. Because he asks for some crazy things. And so what would it look like if a community of people said, we're serious about following Jesus to the degree that it actually looked, our lives look different. And so obviously one of the great symbols of that is itself baptism, that this is a commitment to that kind of life. And so very excited about what God's going to do in the course of these next couple weeks and what he has already done over the past few weeks. So let's do this. Let's pray together and then um, we will start today's um, conversation. Father, we are grateful that you, um, you welcome us. We're grateful that we're welcome at your table, that we get to sit with you, that you, not only do you just allow us a seat, but that you actually actively go out and get us. Father, some of us feel like and have felt like we've been told messages over and over again in our lives that we're not welcome, that there are certain places in which we're welcome, but church or you is just not one of them. Father, today would your message of welcome be absolutely apparent. Would every person who walked in this door have a clear sense that you want them sitting next to you because you love them? Father, we are um, people who long to be loved. We have a challenge in front of us, Father, which is to love people who are otherwise unlovable. 
We don't always know how to do that. We don't always do it great. But we want to follow your example, Jesus. So, Father, as we gather every week and as part of our tradition, Jesus, we ask that you would speak to us at just a moment of stillness, where we are not producing any words, where we just hear from you for just a moment, just a few seconds, maybe the only stillness we get in our week. And so, Jesus, would you speak to us in this moment, Father? Jesus, you dignify us with your love. You seek us out and you see us as we are. You acknowledge where we are and yet you call us to live and to give us the power to live differently. And we're so grateful for that. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Um, hey, if you um, want to follow along in your outline, there's a, or in your bulletin, there's a little outline in there. You can take that out and follow along. If you want to look on the screen, there'll be some, some scripture on the screen. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. We'll dance around a little bit in there, but uh, beginning in verse 27 in Luke chapter 5, you can go there. As you're getting that out, um, let me just ask you a quick question. This is like a survey question. If, imagine the scenario. You're at someone's house. And you have, you've just eaten off a paper plate or a nap, you have a napkin or something you need to throw away. You inevitably will ask the question, you know, where's your trash, right? Where, 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 where's your guy's trash? Now, if that person who's hosting you is not there, where's the first place you will look? Under the sink. How many of you guys have your trash under your sink at your house? Okay, hands up. This isn't like I'm not going to call you out and prove it or anything. Just, okay. How many do not have it under the sink? How many of those people who do not have it under the sink uh, have some kind of compactor, like some kind of other device? Okay, good. Now, most people check under the sink. Now, if that person says to you, if you actually ask the person, if you said, hey, where's your trash? And they go, it's in the hall closet. <laughs> really? No, I'm serious. It's in the hall closet. We keep our trash in the hall, next to the shoes and the jackets and stuff. We just put it in there. <laughs> really? Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. And you, I mean, if you walked in there and saw their trash in the hall closet, you would say, that doesn't belong there. That's like, you know, there's no law telling anybody that your trash should probably most likely be under the sink or somewhere in the vicinity of, of like the sink or whatever. Like it should be in the kitchen, definitely, but not there. There's no law that tells people they're supposed to put their trash there. But we all know that it should be because that's crazy, right? Now that kind of thing is called the norm. It's called the social norm. There's no law for, there's no, nothing penalizing people for putting their trash in the closet. There's no reward for, there's just like, we just know you're not supposed to do that. Now, there's all kinds of norms. Like, um, you know that if you're at your friend's house, just this is how bizarre we are. Just think how bizarre this is. You're at your friend's house, and they're serving you dinner, and you get up to start clearing the plates because as an act of, like, gratitude, and they, they say, what are they supposed to say? Oh, no, no, don't worry about it. Now, you may have the intention of going ahead and cleaning the dishes. You may do it anyways, but they have to say, don't worry about it, I got it. Or else you look at them like, wow, they expect me to clean the dishes? <laughs> Am I right? And, and, and even, there's even a part of us too that says, if we're hosting the people, we're supposed to say, you know, they're our friends. They should get up and kind of do this. And I get to refuse them. And I'll even do it, but they have to ask, right? Even now imagine this scenario, that's, which is bizarre. I'll get the dishes. No, don't. But if you don't ask, oh, you're not coming over again, right? <laughs> if you go to dinner with someone else and you, uh, and they, and they have offered to take you to dinner, it's like some, it's great. They're going to take you to dinner. And they reach for their wallet at the end of the day. Thank you so much. The, the, you know, the server puts the bill right in the middle. And you, you have to then reach for your wallet or the bill. That, even though they said they take you, did it right? Because if you don't, you just look like, really? Freeloader? You're not going to like even offer? 
You have to have the other person who hosts you give you the right of refusal. Like, they have to be able to say, no, 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 thank you, I got this. Are you sure, really? Because I, I have a... I have a Chick-fil-A gift card. That's all. Is that good? Or do they take that here? I know we're not at Chick-fil-A, but is that matter? Like you have, like you have to have that moment with them or else you're rude. These are all social norms. They're expected ways in which we operate that we've all learned just kind of culturally. There's been no one that's taught us this necessarily, but we've observed them and we've probably absorbed them in some capacity or another. Now in the ancient Near East, there is a lot of norms that we don't have. There's a lot of things we don't really think about in the same sense. And one of the norms that they have that govern the way in which people operated, the way that governed relationships, was something basically called purity mapping. In other words, there was a place for everything, including trash. There was a place for everything. In fact, what you, one way to describe it is to say this is where the unclean things belong and where clean things belong. Where dirty things or unclean things, they have a place. And the right order of the world keeps those dirty things separated out from the things that are pure. So it covered things like actual things, objects covered places. Some places were unclean and people who were clean didn't go in them and vice versa. So for instance, if you've ever heard of the place Samaria, all the Jews didn't go in there because the Samaritans were there and that's not where you're supposed to go because they're unclean. You have um, people who are unclean like Samaritans, people who have diseases, people who are corrupt. All of those people are people who are unclean and they don't belong near everything else. There are times that are clean or unclean. Sometimes that are very clean, you might understand or, or know about, like particular times in the Jewish calendar, like the Sabbath or special holidays and festivals, things like that. Food itself can be clean or unclean. Pork, for instance, is not clean, that kind of stuff. You understand me? So there's all kinds of these things that are governing the way in which people operate. They all have these understandings. Now, what's, what's interesting is when you look at the life and ministry of Jesus, he is constantly over and over again, challenging these norms all the time. It is probably one of the most infuriating things for the religious power structure at the time because he flies in the face of all of these social norms that everybody's supposed to know. Every good, normal, like in good standing Jewish person should know you don't do certain things. And Jesus does all of these things. that They just go, wait, you're not supposed to do this. And Jesus is concurrently making claims about himself, about God's kingdom, and about himself being God's chosen person, the one called the Messiah. And people are like, what? How are you? That's not, we don't, you don't do that. I want you to check out this story in light of what I just said about all these social norms. Because over and over again throughout Jesus' ministry, as you look in the book of Luke, as you read the gospel accounts, you always get this picture of Jesus frustrating religious people because he's bucking social norms. Okay, check this out. This is Luke 5.27. First says this, after this, stop right there, okay, after this, there you go, uh, here's what happened, you need to know this, a couple things that have already happened in Jesus' ministry, okay, just to give you a little bit of background, first of all, he has, um, he's been tempted in the wilderness, he's been casting out demons, he's been talking about this thing called the kingdom of God, uh, the book of John calls it a little something like, called the eternal life, the book of Matthew refers to it as the kingdom of heaven, but Jesus is talking about this thing called the kingdom of God, and he's recruiting people to follow him, he has, uh, he has healed a leper, he has cast out some demons, and now just the mo- right last week, if you're with us, he healed a guy who was lowered through a roof, who was a, a paralyzed guy through a roof. The guy gets lowered in front of him. Jesus, before he heals him, he forgives him of his sins, which all the religious people are like, whoa, whoa, you can't do that. You're not allowed to do that. Only God can do that. So Jesus proves that he actually could do it by telling the guy, why don't you get up and walk and prove to these guys I have the power to forgive sins. So he gets up and walks. Now, that, that kind of story begins to get some wheels. People are going to start talking about, wait a second, this is a guy who did this crazy thing. He said this bizarre thing, which is he forgives sins. 
And then he tells the guy who is paralyzed to get up and walk, and the guy does. Jesus is gaining a reputation, and people are aware of his teaching and how he's calling people to do stuff, and it's kind of getting a little bit insane. Now, uh, here we go. Let's keep reading the rest of the verse. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax, uh, his tax booth. So Jesus sees a tax collector. And you have to understand here, this is, a, this is, a, this is kind of a, a bizarre thing. Because Jesus sees a guy, a tax collector, and what he does is, first of all, you have to understand what a tax collector is all about. A tax collector is a person who is recruited by um, the occupying people. In this case, would be the um, would be the Romans. Tax collectors are people who are employed by the Romans to tax their own people. It is a very unregulated business, which means people who are tax collectors can take money and they can give whatever they owe Rome and then keep the rest. They are generally regarded as traitors. They are considered as a people unclean. Jesus, what you have to understand is before we even get before, Jesus goes out to this person. What you have to understand is there's a person who is completely unclean. And it is Jesus who goes out to him. Now, nobody goes out to tax collectors. People avoid tax collectors. Nobody wants to go around them. And there's a couple different things you should know about tax collectors. One is there are some, which is kind of this big racket called chief tax collectors, who have multiple tax collectors working for them. Think extortion. Think mob. Okay? Those are chief tax collectors. But the little crony guys, basically like toll collectors, those guys are the guys out kind of standing on bridges and investigating who's got stuff and how they can tax them. The poor people generally regard those people who are on the the bridges and stuff like that as not much of a threat because they don't have much to be taxed. It is the rich who despise the tax collectors more than anybody else. Now, it's also believed that if a tax collector is poor, they're probably honest. If a tax collector is rich, then they're dishonest. They're just like corruption and, you know, money are like right together. Strange how that works, right? So this is kind of the belief about tax collectors. Jesus goes out to greet this guy. Uh, Generally, the belief is that a person is already, the the popular perception, though, about a tax collector is that they're already corrupt. Earlier on in Luke, Luke, I think in your notes I have John chapter 3, but it should say Luke chapter 3. There is John the Baptist, John the baptizer, has a ministry. This is a guy preceding Jesus. And what John the baptizer does is these people come to him and they, they, they say, you know, hey, here's what I've got. I want to follow you. I want my life to change. And John has a ministry of two things. Baptism, which we saw last week, and this other thing which goes with it called repentance, which means just turning your life. It's a U-turn, having a U-turn. And repentance has kind of lost its meaning in a lot of popular culture. But it just means turning your life around. So all these people come to John and they say, what should we do? And here's what, what it says about tax collectors. Look what it says on the screen. It says this, Luke chapter 3. Even tax collectors came to be baptized, which means the phrase even is incredibly interesting. It means these are people who have no desire to change their life because they profit so much, because they're already corrupt. The belief is no tax collector would ever want to change their life because their heart is just so cold and so evil. Even tax collectors came to John to be baptized. Uh, Then it says this, teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. What's being said there is that the default position, the default like position of a, a tax collector is ripoff. And he says, just don't do that anymore. That is the turning around of your life. So you'll be baptized, and the idea is that you would turn your life around from corruption to righteousness, to like no longer being corrupt. Even tax collectors, there's these scumbag, unclean people who are coming around to John, and now Jesus is going out to that same kind of person that nobody else wants. And he goes out to this guy, 
And he tells him, oh, his name's Levi. Tells him, why don't you come and follow me? Now, the word Levi is interesting, too. Because the guy named Levi is someone who's connected with, someone, with a group of people called the tribe of the Levites. Levites are people specifically set apart in the Bible to take care of the temple. These are people who are designed from whom the priests come. If they're looking for priests, they grab them from the tribe of Levi, of the Levites. Now, there's this guy named Levi, named for among the most righteous people who have the most sacred responsibilities in all of Judaism. But he's not allowed access to the temple because he's corrupt and unclean, dirty and unwanted. And so Jesus went out to this guy who is otherwise marginalized and unwanted because he has a job which is essentially corrupt. Verse 27. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. So Jesus looks at a guy who nobody would ever want to associate with, and he says, why don't you come and follow me? Levi, Levi, he's at some kind of booth, whatever that looks like, and just walks away. Now this is different. If those of you guys are familiar with some of the stories of Jesus, how he calls people like fishermen to come follow him. Those fishermen, you know, when they could, if, if everything with Jesus doesn't work out, they could go back to fishing. The fish don't say, wow, really? You're going to come back here after you left us? You don't, don't disgrace us like that. Don't disgrace, you just, we've, been, we've been waiting here to be caught and you left. How dare you? But a tax collector is leaving a job. It'd be like show, just not showing up for work one day. Like, I'm just not, I just stop coming in and I never come back. You are not going to get rehired back at that business. You're not going to, my, Amanda tells me the story one time she was in high school, she was working at Chili's and all of her friends came in and said, hey, we're all going somewhere. And she was just like, okay, and just left. <laughs> didn't collect the paycheck, didn't tell a boss, just walked out like she was the hostess. Like, how many in your party? Let's go. Just walked off. She's not going to get hired again at Chili's. Same thing's happening here, except now you're, it's kind of a little bit more intricate. You got mob, you got all kinds of, you know, collusion and weird, you know, sort of taxing. Also. So he leaves. He doesn't get to come back if this whole following Jesus thing doesn't work out. The word following here, it has kind of this finality piece to it. It has this tone of, it's not just that I'm walking away from, so it's that I am fully giving myself over to this person and whatever he's doing. It is a massive decision. Now, it's, there's this, well, I'll put it on your outline. There's a, there's a quote from C.S. Lewis. It captures this idea of the wholeness of what's being described. It, it just says this. C.S. Lewis is a Christian scholar who said it this way. To become new means, we, means losing what we now call ourselves. Out of our old selves, into Christ we must go. Jesus looks at a guy who is unwanted, who has a history, who has a story, who has done things that are regrettable, who has cheated his own family and cheated his own people, who has disgraced his own family name, the Levites, and there he is taking money and he's barred from public, from public worship with everybody else. And Jesus tells that guy, come and follow me. And he leaves everything. See, C.S. Lewis is saying, when we go to follow Jesus, there is this whole self kind of thing. Even if we don't feel like we're worthy, even if we don't feel like we measure up, even if we don't feel like we have enough, God calls people like us to walk with him and to say, okay, what if we, did, what if, what if we really did follow him? What would this look like? Continuing on. Verse 29, then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with him. Now, if he's having a large banquet, 
That means then that this tax collector isn't poor. If this tax collector, Levi, is having a great banquet and he's not poor and he's rich, it means that he is corrupt. What Luke is illustrating by this great banquet, he doesn't say he has hot dogs and top ramen for a couple of his college buddies. It says he has a great banquet. Luke is saying this is a person who is absolutely corrupt. Everybody would know this person is corrupt because he has money. And he invites all these people to come with him. Some translations have this not just being other people. It's other sinners. One translation of the Bible has other notorious sinners. Levi leaves his job, follows Jesus, has a great banquet. He has no idea what's next. He has no idea how he's going to make his next paycheck. However, however indebted he is, he doesn't have the same cash flow. Now he leaves, Jesus has a great party. And all these people who are otherwise unclean and unwanted, who do not belong in the public sphere with everybody else, are now in this party. And Jesus is sitting there with them. The actual word for eating with them is reclining. The tables were low in the first century. People still do this in the, in the, in the Middle East. But you have a low table in which you kind of basically lay down, kind of on one shoulder, kind of propped up, eating with one hand. And there's Jesus laying down with these guys, sitting right there with them, being next to them, and all kinds of stuff. Now, you have to understand, too, when we talk about the idea of a, of a, um, of a purity map, never more rigidly, except maybe in the temple, is a purity map enforced than at a dinner table. You do not eat with unclean people. How dare you bring someone unclean into your house unless they've been properly sanitized, A. And B, you would never let them share the same kind of food that you would. I mean, this is like, that's just so, we don't do that. And here's Jesus reclining at a table with a bunch of people who are all deemed to be unwanted and unclean. Now, what you have to understand is, this doesn't mean that Jesus is advocating for corruption. Like, I just love what you guys are doing, ripping people off. This is great. I love this. Food is good. You rip off some more people, we could have a little bit better food. You know what I mean? He's not, that's not what he's saying. He's not advocating for what their life is. He, what he's doing is he's, he's validating the dignity of the human beings who have been, who have been corrupt. He's not, uh, he's not advocating for the, the practice of corruption, but he's advocating for people. And so he sits among them. In fact, if you were to look at the, the, um, even the subject heading, and if you have your Bible, it probably has a subject heading that says something like this. Jesus calls Levi and eats with sinners. That's generally what that's, that's that little section of Scripture, what that says. Jesus calling a person nobody else wants and then dining at a table with these people, busting up social norms. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and teachers of the law who belong to their sect complained to his disciples why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Again, some translations have it this way. Why do you eat with such scum? Now, first thing you have to absolutely grab is that these guys don't ask Jesus. Hey, well, hey Jesus, real quick question. We're kind of religious elite. Pharisees are people who are known, if you were with us last week, as they put a, the, the fence builders around the law. There's 600 and some 613 laws in the, old, in the Hebrew Bible. Pharisees added hundreds more so they wouldn't inadvertently sort of corrupt the law. They would be able to be so protected from the law that they made other laws. And they don't ask Jesus, hey Jesus, why are you associating with these people? They ask his disciples. Maybe they're afraid of Jesus' answer. Who knows? But they ask his disciples and they say, 
Why do you eat with tax? Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, what's really crazy is there's a word here. The word complained. The word complained. It's actually in Greek. It sounds. It sounds like it means. The word is hegongazon. Listen, if you say it under your breath, it sounds like you're complaining or mumbling. Hegongazon. Okay, that's what they're doing. You with me? Now that word matters. This is why. That word is a word used in the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible to describe the way in which God's people were mumbling and complaining against him. Here's what it says in Numbers 14. This is where this, you see the word grumble or complaining. Every time you see it, you can circle it or underline it if you want. Here's what it says. God has taken his people out of Egypt following, following Moses. They're walking out into the promised land. All the people are super excited about that. And they're grumbling and complaining. And here's what happens. Verse 26, Numbers 14, verse 26. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, who are leading the whole charge here, how long will this wicked community grumble, on, against me? I have heard complaints of these grumbling Israelites. Not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted, uplifted hand to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. Now, what he's saying is, because you've been complaining, you have so missed everything that I've done for you. You're ticked off that we have to eat manna every day. Well, really? What else are you going to eat? You're in the desert. You know, it comes out of the sky. It's like you just go pick it up and eat it. You, I just gave that to you. You don't have any explanation. You're kept alive by this stuff. You're thirsty, and I gave you water out of a rock. Nobody can do that. And the people are like, yeah, yeah, but we like being in Egypt more. When we were slaves, the food was better. And God is like, are you serious? So he's so tired of the grumbling and complaining. They're seeing, these people are seeing God at work in their midst, and all they do is, Hagan on. Where's the meat? Where's the real food? This is a big nightmare. You're not giving us what we want. And so they complain. And God says to them, you don't get to participate then in the ultimate thing I want to give to you because you clearly don't want it and you're not already grateful. Now, back to Levi's house and this party. The Pharisees who are considered by everybody's standard, if you ask anybody, name a righteous person around you. That Pharisee, that guy's righteous. Everybody would say that. The Pharisees are the people who look at Jesus Remember what's happening here too. Remember, Jesus is believed to be this person who is operating as God's chosen person among his people. They watch Jesus and they start complaining. Meaning then what Luke is illustrating and what the story of Jesus in this house is actually doing is saying these people who are complaining, the ones who believe themselves to be the preferred insiders, are going to miss everything. They are not going to be included. The ones who thought themselves to be on the inside, the one everybody would say, if I could choose a righteous person to be like, it'd be a Pharisee. Even people that aren't righteous, I mean, they, they want to be like those guys because they're respected and they know the law and they do everything with such precision. And what's being illustrated here is these people are on the outside of what God is doing. Imagine the scene. Jesus is dining at a table. There are, uh, it's, and it's a massive party, so it's a great banquet, which means there might be three or four or five different tables of people all in a house. We had, last year, we had, um, we had a, a Thanksgiving, a pre-Thanksgiving party at our house with just all of our friends. It was the best idea ever. We still had Thanksgiving with our families, but we had this party with just all of these friends, all together, all their kids. We had 20 kids in this house, our little house, and on their parents, and it was just a, it was a madhouse, but it was so fun. Now imagine then, here's Jesus with these people having this party, this great feast. In fact, some of the language that's often used to describe when God rescues his people is as a great 
banquet. And here are the religious elite standing outside going, why is Jesus eating with those people, those scum? Why is he eating with those people? And now those people who believe themselves to be on the inside, the innermost circle of all that God wanted, are now on the outside. And they don't even realize it. You see, there's a debate that happens among all of these people, particularly Jesus, one of them. Everybody's kind of looking to figure out how are we supposed to live in this world? You know, the, the, the story of God's people in the Bible is one in which they're constantly kind of, they, you know, they would take over, God would give them a land, they'd take it over, then they'd find out that the people who lived there had some pretty cool gods and some pretty awesome practices, and they'd start kind of practicing those things, and then God would go, oh, I think I'm done with you guys, you guys don't want me. And so those people would kind of suffer, and they'd go, oh, God, we want you back, and then God would go, okay, we're back, and you really want me, yes, I really want you, and then they'd follow him again, and they'd get turned away. And this is kind of the story. And the Pharisees have said, enough of that story. We want God to rescue us. Rome is here. We don't like the Romans. Israel, let's get everything right. Let's start acting the way God intended us to be. And they base this idea primarily on a couple different scriptures. But I want to give you a sense that part of what they're saying is we don't want to be considered unclean anymore. We want to get our act together. We want to do what's right. And while the Bible paints a picture sometimes for us, if we grew up in church especially, we look at the Pharisees and go, every one of them corrupt, they're all bad, everyone's a hypocrite. It's not true. I want you to look at what they're saying, just to give you a sense of what this means. Here's what it says when they look at the unwanted people, what this means. Look, Leviticus 19 says this, speak to the entire assembly, this is God speaking to Moses, the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Pharisees are like, look, we got it. We're all supposed to be holy. We, we're going to do that. In fact, what they're looking at is, how would that look like, particularly as it pertains to people who are not so holy? What they decide to do is develop a system of quarantining people who do not belong and quarantining themselves from them so that they never have to deal with them, that they're never filthy, that they're never dirty, that they're always holy. Look what it says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. Now, what Jesus is doing is kind of flying in the face of this. He's sitting with people who everybody knows are mocking God's law, the corrupt people, these sinners. Now, anybody want to argue with, these, with, these, with the scripture these Pharisees are promoting? I mean, they're calling people to holiness, sort of this right kind of living. And it doesn't seem like Jesus even opposes that either. He calls people to even greater. He even says at one point, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. So what do, we, what do we do? When it comes to looking at the unwanted, the Pharisees adopted a policy that said, let's quarantine them and quarantine ourselves. And yet Jesus seems to have something quite different going. Jesus looks at the Pharisees' complaint, who say, why do you eat with such scum? Why do you eat with such notorious sinners? And here's what he says in Luke chapter 5. Jesus answered them. It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Remember, repentance means just turn around. In other words, Jesus has a different understanding about what holiness is all about. That somewhere in this whole holiness conversation is, has something to do with rest, restoring people who are not there yet. But this is the way Jesus sees the, the ministry of God in the world is one, not just where we say, those people over there. Not holy, stay away. What he seems to be saying is, they're not holy, let's go towards them. Whoa. 
he says this, he kind of takes some of his cues probably from Ezekiel 34, which says this. I myself, this is God speaking, I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the sovereign Lord. I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. He goes on to say how he'll actually punish the people who don't do it. The people have been entrusted to care for my sheep, my people, and the leaders are not doing it. And Jesus is constantly saying to the people who are in leadership, he keeps kind of prodding at them with that. Are you going to take care of these people or are you going to keep separating them out and quarantining them? Because evidently God is about restoration, about bringing about wholeness, about seeing people not for just who they are at that moment or the reputation or the mistakes of their past, but seeing them in some way that dignifies their humanity such that they might become something God intended. Let me give you a snapshot of what I think this looks like. By the way, I think one way to sort of frame this is to say, if holiness, the definition of holiness, prevents restoration, then you have lost your way. But the true understanding of holiness is about bringing about restoration for people who are already broken, who do not have their act together, who are busted up people, who wish, who dream, who hold on to a hope that they could be remade into something new. But we are people who like categories. We like neatness. We believe in our own version of purity laws. We have certain kind of expectations about who gets to have a certain amount of presence with us and how we can be associated with other people and all of that kind of stuff. A a quarantining kind of mentality looks like this. This is a person who hides because they know in their own life if anything was ever exposed in their own life that they would be quarantined themselves. And so one of the ways quarantine-minded people operate is they work really hard at pointing out other things and other people so no one would ever dare accuse them. Quarantine-minded people are blamers. These are people who are disconnected because they don't really, they only have a surface-level kind of connection because they don't want people to really know them. Because if they did, then they'd be exposed. These are people who have kind of a bomb-shelter mentality to run and hide and just wait, if anything bad happens, to run away. These are people who are good at justifying their own life, looking at their own life and going, hey, everything's kind of okay here. The reason why I did that is because of this. I'm just being holy because everybody else is holy and I don't want to let anybody know that I'm not as holy as I think I am. These are people who like neat categories. These are people who are detached and unaware. Now, the church, over its course of history, seemingly tends to lend itself to that position more often than not. People who are unclean, people who don't match the right kind of thing, don't say the right stuff, in some cases, in some really, you know, there's no question, in some cases that was about race. Some cases that's about language, in some cases that's about, about family of origin. It's about finance, economy, social status. In some cases, people will quarantine out people who have differing opinions and views. And the truth is, it is so much neater and easier to live that way. It just is. Life is not complicated when things are quarantined. They just, it's just not complicated. You don't belong here, find somewhere else to go. That's easy. And so many people have been wounded on that side of things. I've actually talked to a number of people who said, I used to be part of a church, and I stopped going somewhere in my adult life because I just couldn't continue to have this quarantine kind of feeling for me. I didn't know what else to do. I had made some mistakes. I admitted them, and they weren't willing to let me back in. I didn't say that what I did was right, but I was quarantined. We know that feeling. We've been in that place. 
People have told us you're not welcome in some capacity, in some way or another, because of something that we did or something that's been done to us. And if I'm really honest, I've done it too. I've looked at people that were more difficult for me to handle in my own personal life, and sadly in my ministry life where I've gone, I don't know what to do. I don't want to say that they don't belong, but I'll just give them the passive-aggressive, you don't really belong here kind of feel. Jesus seems to not be real excited about that kind of attitude. Now, someone who's restoration-minded, this is a person who lives in a world that is far more messy, where the lines are a lot more kind of people are coloring, and it's like, I'm not sure exactly what we're supposed to do here. These are people who live in a world that's a little bit more confusing. This is a person who seeks more than anything else to dignify the humanity of another human being. It doesn't mean that they advocate for a position in which everything that that person does is right, but they advocate for the person over everything else. This is a person who identifies brokenness, and rather than going, well, that person's broken, I should get my distance, they're somehow moving toward it, toward that person. This is a person you would say is compassionate. This is a person who lives in such a way that they are risky in their own relationships, and they're a little bit messy. Now, I have to say a little side note here. A person who is restoration-minded is not absent of boundaries. You have to understand that. It doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. Here's what this means. Boundaries are different than quarantining. Boundaries enable restoration to happen. I have a friend who, um, he grew up in a house where, this is just awesome, where the family would often take in homeless people and let them live there. Whoa. And the family would say, you're welcome to stay here. Here are some boundaries such that we can help you get back to where you need to be. And if they couldn't, then they'd have to say, I'm sorry, this isn't going to work out any longer. That's a person who is, has a restoration mind. Anybody in this room want to say, you probably shouldn't have boundaries and you have a homeless person live at your house? Of course not. We would never say that. That's a right way to do that. And for me, as a person who walks with Jesus and is trying as best as I can to figure that out, and trying to figure out how to do that as someone who also leads a church, I find myself swirling around kind of the middle of both categories, to be honest. This past week, I, um, I was, um, on Wednesday, I was leaving the Irvine campus, where we, it's sort of where a lot of our meetings happen on Wednesday. Everybody's there from all the campuses. I'm leaving the Irvine campus. I have to pick up my son at soccer practice out here in Mission Viejo. And um, I, get in my, I get in my car, and I get a knock on the window. And I look over, and there's this guy, and he's like, hey, do you, do you work here? And I was like, I just so badly wanted to go, no, bye. You know, like, sorry, watch your toes. You know, like, <laughs> I, knew it was, I knew it was coming. Do you work here? Yeah, I work here. Do you think you give me and my girlfriend a ride up to the bus stop up here? We've been, we've been walking around all day and trying to do stuff. And, you know, I'm like, yes. <laughs> so I, put, I get him and his girlfriend in the car, and they've kind of got this, they got, they got a story. You know, I don't, where it's like we're out of money, and we have a son who's been taken from us, and we can't see him because we have to get to prove some stability and all this stuff. So I drive up. Their luggage is on another street, which is a little weird. So I go to pick up their stuff and throw their luggage in my car. And I'm running late to this practice. And I'm, they're telling me their story. And, you know, so I'm listening to this story going on, and I'm like, okay, I'm, dri- and I'm, this, so I'm driving them. Through, and I'm like, I, somehow between about 400 yards after I left the parking lot at the church, I turned into probably one of the coldest, most isolated people I've ever been in my life. 
partly because I was like, the guy's in the back seat. I don't know, I don't know how safe that is. He, you know, I'm with his girlfriend. I don't know what I'm going to get. Like, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm like, this is so irresponsible. And like, you know, I'm like, you know, all that kind of stuff, panicky too. But I turned into the coldest person. He's telling me a story, and it's a tragic story. And I'm like, yeah, 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 great. And I'm trying to zoom through the traffic to get them to where they need to go. And I drop them off. I'm supposed to, they're like, can you take us? Um, they, oh, by the way, I get in the car and they're like, oh, where are you guys, where are you going? I'm going, I'm going to Mission Viejo. They go, Mission Viejo, can you take us there? Yes, I can. I have no reason not to take you that place. I'm going there. So I'm driving them and I am giving them the coldest shoulder you've ever seen in your life. Great opportunity. I have a captive audience of people which I could talk about. How's everything going? Man, it sounds like it's been tough. Would it be okay? I know this is a little churchy thing, but it would be cool at that moment to go, would it be all right if I just prayed for you guys? That would be all awesome. I didn't do any of that. I dropped them off at a gas station, basically skidded to a stop. You know, skirk, you know. Hey, guys, hey, great, great. Let me get your stuff out of the car. You know, I'm like, okay, great. God bless you. Which is, I didn't say that because that would have been even more of a slap in their face. But I was like, okay, go have fun. Okay, hey, the transportation center's right down there. I got to go. Bye. I don't even know their names. So here's this, here's this thing where I'm going, hey, I'm kind of part of this restoring thing. I'm all about the, like, being together with people and we're doing this. And, yay. and at the moment they got in my car, I was like, get out of my car. That's literally how I was thinking. It's just so easy to quarantine people. Even in the midst of trying to do something that feels otherwise restorative, there is this kind of disconnect, at least it was for me. And yet the ministry of Jesus is so incredibly clear about people who do not otherwise belong, people who get blamed, people who get overlooked, people who get marginalized, people who are unwelcome by the religious community or any other part of the community. Jesus is so about those people. He's so clearly about those people. You see, there's an implication here that happens in the story of Levi, which is this. The people at the dinner party, not only are they eating dinner with Jesus, they're now part of his project, which means after dinner, they're going to be a part of whatever he's doing. What the guests do after dinner is they don't hoard Jesus. They don't set up boundaries around him. They participate in his restoration project. They believe that it's so critical for the people individually and for communities and all of whatever it might mean for society. They're about all of it. Because of what's happened to them, they don't say this is ours and nobody else gets to have it. You see, there's a reason why we always say at our church, if you've been with us, you've heard us say this before, that the beauty, the truest beauty of the church, as great as it is here with the baptism and Easter and everything else that we get a chance to do, the greatest beauty of the church is always expressed outside of these walls. Because that's where the true beauty has to be expressed. I'm just going to tell you right now, we don't have a name for this event yet, but I just want to tell you, on June 22nd, you can write it down, this is after Father's Day. Mariners has adopted the lowest performing school in the Saddleback Valley School District, which is a mile and a half from right here. We have talked to the principal. You guys helped to raise $10,000 to give to that principal. They want to renovate that school, and we're going to make it happen. This is a school where it became an immersion school, which means they speak two languages in the school. Immediately half the school left, half the faculty left. The school said, we don't want those people. And the people who come into that school, those people, the others, are people who are first and second generation Spanish-speaking Mexican families and Latin American families that are bussed in from San Juan. People don't want those people in their neighborhood. Not so with us. We are going to make that school awesome. 
Here's the, the big overarching vision of that thing. Get ready. I want a thousand people on June 22nd to be a part of renovating that school. What a statement it will make to our community that we say the people who are in the margin don't get left aside. We're about them because we are them. We're the people who have been welcomed. We have a story. We have a life in which we look at our own life and we think we're on the inside. But more often than not, if we start quarantining people, we quarantine ourselves away from what God is actually doing. And we're about what God is doing. We're people who, if we're really honest, we need them. We've made some huge mistakes. We have regrets and shame. And we need each other to go. God is rebuilding us together. For you, what's the next most dangerous thing you'll do that busts some of that unclean stuff? Some of that thing where you go, there's a quarantine. Take one step. Some of you aren't willing to put a homeless person in your car. I'm not saying you have to do that. Some of you, that would be the next step for you. Some of you might be, homeless person in my car, let them live in my house. Great. Some of you might be thinking about people who have a reputation in your school or in your neighborhood or amongst the mom group that you hang out with, people that have been otherwise marginalized because they made some pretty poor choices. Who among them do you go, I'm just going to be around them, and yes, some of their uncleanness might rub off on me, I get that, but I'm willing to take that chance. What does it look like for you? What is that next step that says, I've been invited to the dinner party, and I could do something after dinner with these people to dignify their humanity. Let's pray together. Jesus, there's a number of us in this room who feel the effects of not having been welcomed, of having been abandoned, of having been left, pushed aside, forgotten. We are grateful for a place where we can come not having to have everything together. Father, some of us have found in so many places, in so many churches, we felt the experience of being not enough. Father, we're grateful that you say, because of you, because of what you would do for us, you say, you are welcome, and I want to walk with you. I choose you. Jesus, some of us have a long story of pain. We need prayer, and that's why we'll have folks up in the front to pray for you if you need prayer. It's a little bit more specific. If you want to write some prayer down about how you have maybe have felt unwanted and that you're needing God's loving embrace, we want to make sure that we can pray for you this week. But Father, would you hear our songs as we sing back to you a grateful prayer, a grateful um, song that we get to sit at your table and that you look us each individually in the eye and you say, I want you. I don't care if nobody else does. I want you and I love you and I dignify you because you're mine. Father, might we pray those things. Might we have the courage to live those out this week. Would you hear our songs? Would you hear our prayer? In your name, Jesus. Amen.